I am Sheen, a scientist, social entrepreneur, Oxford and Cambridge graduate, and you are listening to Dream Girl, my weekly podcast where I chat to incredible women about their journey, career choices, and generally about being awesome. Hello and welcome back to Dream Girl. I am Sheen, your host, and my guest today is Mehreen Khan. Mehreen and I go way back. We met during my first week in Oxford when I was a wide-eyed fresher. She taught me how to be cool and I became her best friend in the whole wide world. And we have actually traveled the world together from France to Belgium and even to Japan. She studied history and politics and an MPhil in European politics at Oxford University. As a student, she wrote about sport, football mostly, and she was nominated for the Guardian Student Columnist of the Year Award in 2011. She then started her professional journalist career as a graduate trainee with the Daily Telegraph before joining the Financial Times in 2016 as a breaking news reporter writing about economics and markets. She is now the Brussels correspondent for the Financial Times and she covers European politics and the economy, including Brexit. Hi, Mehreen. Yo, yo, that made me sound really good. (laughs) <laughs> I was just I was just going through it and I was like oh my goodness I didn't even know most of this thing before I just sound really old <laughs> I mean it has been a while you know we met about nine years ago we met about yeah nearly a decade that is crazy that is crazy and that was at the end of your university career yeah I was just about um finishing up but you you were a big ball of enthusiasm so by the time you met me I was like <laughs> I was I was pretty much done with it all, to be honest. <laughs> well, so you're joining us from Brussels today, aren't you? How's yep. it there? I'm in lockdown Brussels. Uh, it's Sunday. I'm actually working partly today, doing a Sunday shift. But um, uh, the the town is basically dead. All the shops are closed. The gyms are closed. Um, and we're in second phase lockdown. So there's not a huge amount going on. And the beauty of actually having lockdown as a journalist is that you can effectively do your job wherever you want um yeah because um, we are all just writing uh via laptops and computers so it's not the the sexy journalist uh, reporter image that lots of people have but i think during lockdown everyone's jobs are quite pretty much the same sit at home Mm. yeah and uh are, are you guys coming out of lockdown for christmas it looks like maybe, I think in about three days, so from December 1st or 2nd, they'll open the non-essential shops, a bit like in the UK, but that's so mm-hmm. everyone can do their shopping. Um, the restaurants and bars are going to stay closed because Belgium actually became one of the worst hit countries in Europe for coronavirus. Um, there are many reasons, but one of them is probably because Brussels is a sort of town where people fly in and fly out. Um, mm. Diplomats, politicians, it's a very transient kind of place. So keeping a keeping coronavirus on lock here is 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 quite the task, um, and the whole I mean this town basically runs on people meeting each other. You have to you know be in a room with them uh, whether you're doing you know just the way that diplomacy is. It's all very much face to face. So it's it's really weird actually just not getting to see the people that you know you generate your stories from basically. I can imagine. And how is Brussels different to London? Given that you've worked in both places. It's much, much smaller. Uh, people talk about the Brussels bubble and mm-hmm. uh, the bubble is is a real thing. It's sort of like uh, a few kilometers in the radius of the EU institutions where you have, I mean, it's the, it's the capital of the European Union, effectively. So you have three main institutions, which is the European Commission, the European Council and the European Parliament based here. Uh, and then you have all the kind of lobbying organizations that whose job it is to make sure that, you know, any policy that comes out of this place, how it affects their business. So mm-hmm. it's a kind of political watchtower on the rest of Europe. And it's also an ecosystem in and of itself. And I think there are over a thousand journalists here um, just covering the day to day institutional stuff. And it's a bit like I think the equivalent of people in the UK, maybe be like Westminster in the lobby. Um, mm-hmm. but on a different scale where you have 27 different countries actually coming uh, together here um, rather than just one. And, and you know, 750 MEPs, uh, commissioners, mm-hmm. um, and the prime ministers and the presidents of the European Union come to Brussels every three months, sit around a table and kind of thrash stuff out. Um, so mm-hmm. it's a very live place. It's really busy. It's a brilliant job, but it's not... I feel like I live in the bubble and I don't really live in Belgium, to be honest. I mean, right. <laughs> it's a town gown kind of thing. 
Uh, and there's lots of expats here, but it's, I would recommend Brussels to anyone, especially if you're a bit younger, because you can, you can live here very cheaply. Um, it's, it's diverse enough that you can get hold of cuisines and, and cultures that, uh, that are found anywhere in the world. The Japanese food in Brussels is pretty cool. Um, mm-hmm. and you can walk around the city actually. It's got quite yeah, and you have the fries and the chocolate as well. Got the fries and the chocolate, and the chocolate shops are an essential business, so they have not closed down during lockdown because oh, wow. the Belgians have got their priorities right, and you know, life is chocolate. Chocolate is life, so um, it, it's pretty relaxed. It's it's a relaxed kind of place, and and the and, and what used to be one of the best things about Brussels and Belgium is that you could leave all the time because you're you're in landlocked Europe, and you're mm-hmm. only fifty kilometers away from Germany. France or the Netherlands uh, and you can get out pretty quickly so that was always one of the benefits of being here I mean during lockdown it's all kind of that stopped but the traveling the traveling is among the best parts of this job and just being here actually nice well before we get into the job let's go back to Oxford so tell us a bit about that so you studied history and politics and then you did more of European politics etc so why not directly into a journalism degree I yeah, so I I think in total I would have done five years at Oxford, so three years undergraduate doing history and politics, and then I stayed on um, to do an MPhil in politics. And MPhils at Oxford, some of them are two years long rather than one. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't study journalism at all. That's quite strange now. I think most of the batch of young journalists do study journalism, but for me, mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't see journalism as a career as a profession. It's 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 a bit old school, but it's kind of a craft, right? You just you do it and you practice mm-hmm. it. And um, I was lucky enough at Oxford to to do journalism because I would just do a lot of writing. I'd just mm-hmm. write about stuff I was interested in. I'd make sure that I'd spend my vacations trying to do uh, internships at newspapers, mostly for free. And then you just build up your you build up your portfolio of of work. Um, and by the time that I'd done five years of that, I had quite a reasonable amount of. Uh, stories with my names under them that had been published in national newspapers that I could at least prove to any possible employer that I I have been doing journalism for all throughout my student life. Um, So that's kind of the good thing about it. And if you do an art subject at Oxford, I mean, you're very used to like cramming, learning about a subject (laughs) very quickly and then pretending you're the world's foremost expert on it in three three days. And that's basically the, the, that's why Oxford made me, uh, quite suited to being a reporter because that's basically what you have to do you have these deadlines all the time you have subjects that you don't really know about you've got to master them pretty quickly and then bash out something reasonably authoritative and factually correct that informs someone and is not that badly written um mm-hmm. in like a word count of like usually no more than five to six hundred words so it's a discipline and an art the more you do it the better you get at it um, mm-hmm. and uh, there is a disproportionate amount of Oxbridge graduates in journalism um, I'm not I mean it's not something that I'm completely comfortable with but I understand why because effectively you're, you're just trained in the skills that are quite mm-hmm. helpful when you're a reporter so so did you know from early on that you wanted to go into journalism but decided to get the skills rather than get the degree in journalism I didn't have a clue, to be honest. I mean, I was in my second year. I think everyone, I think first year you kind of, everyone's just getting to know stuff and you think, okay, at some point I'm going to have to get a job and you start thinking about careers. And for me, um, I I always loved football. I loved football mm-hmm. since a really young age. I love sport. I love watching it. And then I think the summer of my second year, I just started um, writing um, stuff about football but in a right. kind of, in a, not particularly like, oh, I watched the game and here are my thoughts of the game. I would sort of take the kind of, uh, uh, kind of global look at it. So um, I was studying politics, you know, sport and politics have become quite important for international football. Uh, and mm-hmm. I just sort of write like 600 to 800 word uh, analytical pieces, quite funny sometimes. And they would be published on uh, a student website that Oxford had. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, which I don't think exists anymore. I think yeah, it, I don't think it does. It's called the Alligator, I think, uh, and it was actually set up by um, by a guy who was doing PP in my year, and mm-hmm. and and basically they were just taking anything, like you could just submit anything, uh, uh, and they were pretty good about just putting it up. And I thought, okay, this is fun. Now that I've got a hyperlink, I can share it around. People can read it, mm-hmm. um, and I do uh, three or four of these sort of short analytical pieces, uh, and then I just ended up building, and it was just fun for me. 
Um, and I just, you know, it was just luck. I, I, I fell into it. I saw a couple of uh, adverts for some internships at the Daily Mirror at the time, which is a tabloid, mm-hmm. who was setting up their first website. So a lot of websites were coming into being, like, People wanted to do sports journalism that was less boring than newspaper journalism. And just right. wanted young, fresh people to have funny takes on it. And I I applied. I sent them the links to things that had already been published. And they were like, sure, mm-hmm. come in for a cu- couple of weeks during spring break or whatever and in the mm-hmm. summer. And that was it. I got into a newsroom. Uh, the first time I ever walked into a newsroom, I saw, like, you know, how these things are done. Um, yeah. Editors and, and reporters and traveling around to grounds and doing press conferences and I got into the groove of it and I got a taste for it. And I thought, actually, yeah, this is, this is a bit of me. Um, oh, wow. And that was it pretty much. Mate, that's incredible. So it started as you just doing extra homework for yourself. Pretty much, pretty much. <laughs> I mean, it was kind of like, oh, I, I, I know quite a lot about football. I'll be honest, there are not that many women in, in sports journalism. I mean, mm-hmm. there are way more now than even what was this? We're talking nearly 10 years ago, say 2010, I think is when I first entered into a newsroom. And I think it gave me a slightly uh, unique selling point mm-hmm. um, because just by virtue of being a woman, my voice was slightly, you know, I would offer them a different voice. Um, yeah. I think a lot of women will be intimidated to do sports journalism, but if you know your stuff, and I was very confident that I knew my stuff because this is like football had been my life for like, 20 years. Yeah. Um, and I could prove that I, kn- I knew my stuff. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and I did have a voice. It was kind of slightly irreverent and a little bit funny. And all I needed was just a chance. I just needed a chance for someone to, to say, okay, go out, go out and produce, produce some work and we'll see how good it is. And that was it pretty much. Um, oh, that's amazing. It was an accident. And like, yeah. Yeah, happy accident. Um, but then, okay, let's go back to Oxford. Now, you know, just generally outside of um, journalism. But what, what what were the things that you enjoyed the most? And what were the things that you wish went differently? So I didn't do the conventional student journalism at Oxford, because to be honest, I was too lazy. Like, so there's two, <laughs> there's two papers, right? There's Charwell, the Oxford student, which still exists. And then there was ISIS, the unfortunately named magazine, which at that point was, Woo. it was, uh, it, it still, it was still a reference to the river and it didn't, it didn't take on the connotations that it's got since. But, and I knew a lot of people who did it, but I, I was writing two essays a week and I was like, I can't commit to, to being a Charwell reporter because I, I just don't have time. Um, mm. so I did it on my own terms. I was like, forget it. I'm just, I'm not going to dedicate myself to becoming editor of Charwo or anything like that. I'm just going to mm. write about stuff that I like and I'm effectively going to self-publish it. So that's what I did. Um, because I just, I, I mean, I just wanted to hang out with my friends and not <laughs> impose any additional discipline on myself above the academics that I was already doing because history and politics is a weird, it's a weird course because there's not that many people in the college. I think maximum you'll have two people in the college doing history and politics. And it, it basically means you'll end up writing two essays a week rather than one and a half. And it was just a lot. It was just a lot of work. Oh, wow. Uh, that I, is a lot of work, isn't it? Compared I, to what science students do. Yeah. I mean, you guys just doss around, um, <laughs> particularly in your fourth year. I don't even understand. <laughs> Why you get an extra year to just chill? Um, <laughs> English students basically did nothing, as far as I could see. Like they were just, they were just balling out, uh, and I just couldn't do it. I couldn't, I couldn't take on any real extracurricular responsibility beyond the academics. And writing mm. about football was fine because I actually just already knew about it. Um, mm-hmm. I, it was like you know part of my life. I'd watch games three times a week. I'd follow my team. I'd read about it. I'd absorb a lot of sports journalism. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, that's, so it was all kind of in my hinterland. And I didn't find it that difficult a thing to grasp. Whereas, you know, mm-hmm. going off and writing about little scandals at the, you know, at the Oxford Union, <laughs> it just, it was, did not appeal to me at all. And a lot of people go mm-hmm. down the political route. So they want to do politics journalism. So they start getting involved in the political stuff at Oxford. And I, again, I had, I had zero time for student politics or, or any particular affiliations. I wasn't a member of the Labour Club or Alco or anything mm-hmm. like that. I just wanted to mm-hmm. do my own thing and it worked out. Okay, so so why, are you one of the rare journalists who didn't have a blog when you were a student? I think so. I think so. I didn't have a blog. I didn't have a particular outlet of, oh, this is Mehreen, a student journalist around town. I think nowadays people <laughs> use 
people use so we didn't also there were no one was really there was no youtubers there was no vlogging yeah. there was no mm. outlet like that it was only 10 years ago but um a twitter had just started i think i got twitter in 2009 and that was when most mm-hmm. people started using it but most people didn't know what twitter was really for apart from like just putting out these brain farts of 140 characters <laughs> it wasn't yep. really a medium for journalism at all then and it was still really traditional people were just writing for the student papers um, and that was the mm-hmm. way they were getting their voice out there. They were either being reporters or critics or uh, columnists or doing the editing. Um, that was how student journalism still worked. Uh, and for me, it, it's, I just didn't find it particularly appealing to be part of a clique um, like mm-hmm. that. It, is a, it was a mm-hmm. clique, you know, like being in Charwell mm-hmm. meant you were like a Charwell person and, and yeah. had a rival, <laughs> the Oxford student. And, you know, it was all a bit... It was it was it was very sort of sectarian, and I just couldn't be bothered. With yeah, it. I did. You didn't go further into sports journalism, did you? I I I kept at it in the sense that I so when I did an internship with the Mirror, and then I think I mm-hmm. spent the, a few months later at the Guardian, um, and I ended mm-hmm. up on the sports desk writing about sports things. And it was difficult because I needed to find an angle on stuff. So when I would enter into mm-hmm. newsroom. The thing is, you're in a newsroom, you're the intern, right? So what can you do? You can make tea for everyone and just sort of <laughs> photocopy, or you could come up with ideas every single day about, I, guys, I want to write this. Here's my pitch. Here's why I think nobody's covering this subject. And here's why I'm qualified to do it. So it was a mm-hmm. constant process of generating story ideas that nobody else was doing in that newspaper. The Guardian is huge, right? Like the Guardian has a yeah. massive sports desk. It's one of the biggest international websites, news websites in the world. And then when I turned up, it's like, okay, what the hell can I offer them? And it was mm. difficult. It was difficult generating angles and stuff. But I did enough that, you know, every time I was in an, I did an internship, I would have uh, three to four, hopefully more pieces under my name um, where I could go out and say, okay, I've just had my, you know, I've got a byline published in the, in the Guardian newspaper and I can mm-hmm. use this now um, forever because this link is going to stay alive forever. I'll put it on my CV and people can see what I'm about. Um, and it's just it's a grind man you just gotta hustle like apply everywhere (laughs) I got rejected 80% of the time for everything Um, and the stuff that when I did get my foot in the door I just made the most of it I made relationships with the people in those newspapers so when it came Mm -hmm. down to it I I could just say you know and also I was working for free let's not forget and it's difficult yeah it's really difficult Mm. living in London if you don't if you're not from London you don't have a flat or a house there you can't stay with anyone um, you just got to grind. You got to use your own money um, <laughs> and, and make it work. Um, and it was just a constant kind of yes. I'm going. I'm going to become a sports reporter. I was almost like mm-hmm. uh, convinced that I would become a football writer. The thing that changed mm-hmm. was in my final year of undergraduate, I got a, a placement at the FT, which was long. It was like two and a half months, which is longest I've, okay. I would have ever done an internship, and it was kind of paid. So you had a stipend which meant like mm-hmm. my food and travel costs were, were paid for. So it was it was one of the best things that I'd ever applied for. But it was at a newspaper mm-hmm. that one, I'd never, ever read. I'd never read the FT. <laughs> I didn't know anything about economics. I did not know anything about finance. I didn't even know what a central bank was. I don't know what a stock is. I don't know the difference between a stock and a bond. Um, and I'm, I'm finding myself at like probably the world's premier financial newspaper. And I just learned it all on the job. I absorbed all of it. I read the paper cover to cover every single day. I rotated around Mm -hmm. the FT's desks. I picked up bits of information and I just had to absorb everything. But the quality that I think all journalists have is it doesn't matter what the topic is. You have to, one, find out why this thing is interesting. What are you trying to say? And the value Mm -hmm. of news is you're telling the reader something they don't already know. And the universe of stuff that people don't already know is huge right it's it's absolutely massive i was covering international energy i don't know i didn't know anything oh about my goodness <laughs> gas pipelines or, or like you know in uh um you know nuclear all of this i just didn't know anything about it but once i was around other journalists i would just chuck mm-hmm. ideas at them and they'd come back to me saying maybe no that doesn't really work but here's another angle maybe you could do 500 words on this a lot of it was analytical. Uh, a lot of it was fun. Um, the FT had a blog called Beyond Bricks, which is just about kind of emerging markets. I used a lot of my football stuff because football is quite mm-hmm. a good way to write about any country because there's always some scandal involving some types of football. Of and course. football is is money, right? Football is a huge yeah. business. It's one of the biggest international mm-hmm. businesses in the world. There's money everywhere. So you can find, you can generate angles like that. 
And I think by being just really proactive and somebody that was around a newsroom constantly generating ideas, um, you know, I made connections with the people at the FT. And then I guess I wouldn't know at that point, but, you know, four or five years later, I would end up working at the FT. So my, mm-hmm. my, my lesson to anyone is that even if you get something that you just, you're like, I don't, why am I working at the lawyer magazine? I have no idea, um, you know, like a specialist. Just take it. Just say, yes, I'll do it. Um, mm-hmm. and test yourself in a weird alien environment of journalism and just but find angles and stories wherever you can never say no never think you're better than this or actually no I really want to be a political reporter so why am I sitting here writing about mm-hmm. um, trade or something always say yes mm-hmm. test yourself and build up a portfolio because that's the thing that's effectively people are going to read when they think about giving you jobs mate this reminds me of confessions of a shopaholic have you have you watched it or read it Confession? No. Okay, I mean, it's not your style at all. It's very girly. But <laughs> is it a blog? <laughs> um, I don't know if it's a blog now, but it, it was a book by Sophie Kinsella, and then they made it into a movie as well. Um, it's basically this girl who really wants to go into fashion writing, and then she ends up at this really like financial heavy um newspaper and she needs to figure out how to write about these things right um and and it's the same thing about you know just making use of any skills that you can get it's just a different industry really so that that's really cool so so would you say that this is kind of a classic path to get into journalism to do loads of internships and then gain as much experience as you can before applying for a job Pretty much. I think the one thing about me that is non-conventional is most of the journalists that I know that are of my age um, usually did a journalism degree as their postgraduate degree. So there is a course at City University. City University, I think, sort of cornered the market for postgraduate studies in journalism. It's based in London. Um, They offer a series of MAs, I think, in like international journalism or political journalism or data journalism. And a lot of the people that of of my year, so my kind of... um, uh, in my age range, all went to city, and mm-hmm. it's. I think it's. I mean, the reason I didn't is because I wanted to do a master's degree where I still was kind of learning a subject, uh, an academic subject, and it's. I think mm-hmm. it's twenty thousand. It was twenty thousand pounds, which for me was a oh, lot wow. of money to spend mm. learning journalism when I I felt that I was already learning a lot of journalism. But the thing that city mm-hmm. gives you, which is is a network. Right. So your teachers, the people yeah. that are teaching you are usually ex-journalists. Um, it's become a very kind of uh, reliable path of producing um, journalists. So if you go there, mm-hmm. you know, you already have a, you've already ticked, I think, a box for a lot of people, um, for a lot of employers. And because you get to know other journalists, I mean, effectively, these are the people that, you know, once you go into the industry, uh, you know, you network with and you know people. And that's how journalism is a lot like that. It's just kind of a little bit about who you know and how you know them. So that's the Mm -hmm. thing that I didn't do. I mean, for me, obviously, because I managed to still get a job in journalism, I would say it's not essential to go to Mm -hmm. to city and to spend a lot of money doing a journalism degree. If you are dedicated enough to being a journalist, you will find a way. However, I would never discourage people that think it's essential for them. Like depending on your circumstances, it's, mm-hmm. I think that, I think the employment rate is like nearly 90% like of graduates oh, get, wow. get jobs. That's so high. Mm. They get jobs. I mean, they get, I don't know what types of jobs they get because you can go from anything mm. to being a journal, a data journalist uh, uh, or going into a graduate trainee scheme at a major national newspaper or going, mm-hmm. you know, working for an online magazine, anything like that. The number of jobs now are just endless. Um, the thing that I would say though, is that, you know, if you want to earn a lot of money, this is not the profession for you. Um, <laughs> I've had friends who, you know, did the, did the kind of more classical, went into the city um, mm-hmm. to the top law firms or consulting. I mean, mm-hmm. I, as an average, I think as a, as a starting salary journalist, you're probably earning, you're earning less than £30,000. Uh, and compared to a lot of your friends who might be going straight into more prestigious kind of jobs, uh, that's almost you're almost earning sometimes two hundred percent less than them. Mm-hmm. Um, so you gotta be prepared for the fact that this is not a get rich quick profession. <laughs> you you do it for the grind and for the hustle and because you love it. And eventually, mm-hmm. it might become slightly more lucrative the longer you stay in journalism. 
but that's mm-hmm. a long, long road because I mean, as a business and an industry, how many people do you know that pay for newspapers or pay for, for reading yeah. news? Mm. Not that many, little. very little. How yeah. many, I mean, I, I, Sheen, do you pay for, what do you pay for? Do you subscribe to any, any journal, magazine, no. newspaper? No. Exactly. You consume no. it all for free. <laughs> right. Yeah. There you go. And you're, and you're the norm, right? And you're the norm. Yeah. Um, which but, which but tells then, you that there's something there's something going on here, actually. Like, uh, mm. we all consume a lot of news. We don't actually pay for it. So where where is this business model? Uh, how does it work? Mm-hmm. And a lot of the times, it's difficult. And, and some of the biggest newspapers in the world, like the Washington Post, are owned by some of the richest people in the world, like Jeff Bezos. And they mm-hmm. run these newspapers a bit like rich people used to have football clubs. It's, it's a kind of, uh, it's a trophy. Um, the FT mm-hmm. is is a little bit different because it is a subscriber model. So most people can't read the FT unless they have a subscription. So I think Oxford have a subscription actually. So they so. have a subscription to the FT. Most universities do. If you work for a bank, perhaps they will have one. But a lot of normal people just won't spend, I don't know how much it is a week, um, subscribing mm. to the FT online. Um, but that's the business model. I think the New York Times has 7 million subscribers, which is incredible. But they are so far above the rest. I think the FT just hit a million. They're so much far mm-hmm. above the rest um, that when, you know, we all read The Guardian for free. And we yeah. read the BBC for free. I mean, pay our license yep. fee, but, but that's pretty much it. So this is not money business. It's not a money business. Mm-hmm. So, but but then with this shift towards, you know, people reading through the apps or online for free, and therefore as a new journalist trying to break in, do you think having an online presence makes a difference on the likelihood of you getting a job? I think it will show that you are entrepreneurial enough to get your stuff out there. So it's always brilliant mm-hmm. having your byline, your name in a nationally recognized media organization. And that's awesome, mm-hmm. right? Because it, it kind of shows yeah. that you've already got your foot in the door. But before that point, you just need to just show that you've got stuff that's written. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of the stuff, I mean, when I even when I was getting into journalism, like, and it was still people were like, oh, yes, you know, the traditional newspapers are making the shift into online newspapers. So they definitely mm-hmm. saw young people who knew how to use the internet. I mean, you were pretty much, if you know how to work spreadsheet, like, you're already, like, the tech the tech whiz kid i think when i walked into the ft one everyone thought that i was the the south asian uh tech help anyway they thought i was the it desk because you know it's, it's it's pretty white right i mean the, the only brown people the only most of the brown people there were just you know were it helpers so they already thought that i was just, i was there to help them like you know turn the internet on oh and off God. Yeah, um, and the other one was that I, actually, I did actually know how to use the I did know how to use websites, and I did know how to use um, publishing systems online, and I did know mm-hmm. how to use spreadsheets, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that already made me far above uh, above most of the rest of people. Now, I mean, now the difference is is that as a reporter, you are expected to do everything. So you expect to take videos, you expect to, to do pieces to camera, uh, even holding your iPhone up and just talking into it, um, producing short clips, doing podcasts, tweeting. Tweeting is a huge, huge part of my job. Um, mm-hmm. and, and part of my, I guess, I hate the word brand, but just kind of, you know, a lot of people can't read the FT because they have to pay for it. But a lot of people know that I work at the FT and know they can read my tweets for free. And I do provide a lot of content on Twitter, which is news about the stuff that I'm writing about. So, you know, if I've got a little mini scoop, I'm always promoting it and mm-hmm. pushing it out on Twitter because people then think, okay, Mehreen is a reliable person that write, that reports a lot about the, e- about the European Union. If I'm interested in it, I'm going to follow her and uh, I will mm-hmm. be able to get, a, you know, a daily stream of content about stuff that's happening in Europe. It's hugely mm-hmm. important. I am in a bureau of five people. I use mm-hmm. Twitter way, way more than all of my colleagues um, because for me, it is a natural, it is, it is an arm of my reporting. I don't just use mm-hmm. ft.com to put my news out. I use Twitter to report stuff. Um, and this is just what's expected of you as, a, as a, somebody who's coming into journalism. You've got to do it all. And in, that's not the case 25 years ago when a reporter would just write stories, get them printed in the newspaper, and that was it. They would just do generate stories. Now it's like I've got to do analysis. I write a newsletter every day, every single day from Brussels, five days a week. We mm-hmm. put out a daily newsletter about news and analysis that's happening in Europe, and I'm responsible for it. 
uh, every single day, yeah. which is why I'm working at weekends like today. Um, mm -hmm. So you, you've got to wear many, many, many different hats and be prepared to do everything. It's a 24 seven, uh, you know, seven days a week job. You never clock off. It's not yeah. a nine to five. You don't get paid that much. Um, yeah, I'm making it sound pretty rubbish, but it's exhilarating. <laughs> if you find the right beat for you, it's completely exhilarating. And okay, so can you tell me what it actually means to be the Brussels correspondent? What's your day to day like? What do you do? So the FT is based in London. That's where the HQ is. Um, but it's very much international newspaper. So unlike the Times or the Guardian or other British newspapers, we have very big operations in New York and another big operation in Hong Kong. So we cover all time spans yeah. from North America to Asia. And then they, we have a, a network of foreign correspondents in most countries in the world covering the whole world. And Europe, because it's our doorstep, I think is the FT's strongest um the strongest part of its brand because we cover re Europe really, really well. And one of the main reasons mm -hmm. is because we cover Brussels really, really, really well. And we have uh, mm -hmm. a team of five here. So I'm part of a reporting team of five. And between us, the reporters sort of carve out different beats that is different parts of the policy world between ourselves. So I have a colleague that covers uh, financial services. I have a colleague that covers trade. I have a colleague that covers competition and tech policy. I have a colleague that covers uh, diplomacy and foreign affairs. And then there's me in the bureau who I have certain beats, like I cover environment policy here. I cover the institutions themselves and I cover the economy. And I also write a newsletter. Mm -hmm. um, being the Brussels correspondent in the FT, I have to be honest, I think it's, I think it's the best job in the FT because Uh, you know, you have the privilege of access because, you know, if I call up someone who works in the institutions about story and I say, hello, I'm calling from the Financial Times, more times than mm -hmm. not, they'll pick up the phone and they'll respond. And that's yeah. because for the last 40 years or so, the FT has really established itself as a very credible um, outlet for reporting about the European Union. And that's thanks to all of my colleagues who've, you know, I ride on the coattails of all of my predecessors who've been here. Um, mm -hmm. On a day-to-day -day basis, it means that I cover sometimes the minutiae of the politics of the European Union. Um, there have been huge events that have happened in the European Union over the last five to 10 years, including Brexit and including financial crises. Um, every time there's an election in the European Union, so we have an election cycle of four to five years, we cover that on a day-to-day -day basis. My job is just to make sure that I almost know all of the big stuff that is happening on my beats. What is happening mm -hmm. with environment policy? What is happening with the European Union's budget, which is a pretty big deal and a huge drama? Um, I have to keep an eye on Brexit. I have to keep an eye on EU relations with the US, EU relations with China. So the EU is becoming quite a big a uh, green policy uh, regulator that all falls under my beat. I cover the institutions themselves, so the commission, the parliament and the council. I cover financial stuff and the economy, including the EU budget. Um, and uh, I guess the the COVID, the financial response to COVID, that's become a huge story um, in mm -hmm. Brussels and across Europe over this last few months and an unexpected crisis. So you know, how is Europe going to get out of um, the pandemic? Um, I cover diplomacy and I also cover the Netherlands as a country. I'm based in Brussels, but the FT used to have a Dutch correspondent for a long time, but for various reasons, because of cutbacks, we, we don't have a person based in the Netherlands. So I have to follow um, Dutch politics uh, and big stories coming out of the Netherlands too. So it's pretty busy, actually. I mean, it's it, I have stuff to do every single day and it is a relentless news beat, which provides mm -hmm. uh, a torrent of news. And the great thing about working at the FT is that EU news is usually, you know, on the front page or close to being on the front page all the time because it's very, very important to our readers. Mm -hmm. And have you met any famous people in your in your time at the FT? Famous? I think it's relative, right? So, I mean, I met Will I Am actually. So oh my goodness! <laughs> he's nice. kind of just he's he's just kind of famous, famous, right? Because he's. People actually yeah. know about him. And then I guess the famous yeah. people that you have is um, our proximity to, to leaders, right? So interviewing, mm -hmm. I've interviewed the Dutch prime minister. You know, we have the luck of having the German chancellor, Angela Merkel, and, and the French yeah. president, Emmanuel Macron, you know, coming to Brussels every three or four months where they 
give press conferences. Uh, Boris Johnson back in the day, Theresa May when the Brits were involved. I think nice. it's it's more than I guess famous but powerful, right? So a lot of yeah. powerful people come through these you know um, institutions on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. And as a journalist, they are the people that I'm writing about all the time. Um, mm. And apart from proximity to them, you have proximity to their diplomats and to their ministers. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it's it's incredible because it's not one country you're covering, it's 27 countries. Ooh. And yeah. understanding the dynamics, you know, I know more about Estonian politics, right, and the ins and outs of Estonia <laughs> than, than probably I do about the UK sometimes because I'm, you know, it, that's just part of my world now and I, I, I have to come to grips yeah. and, and understand it. Um, and I have to understand why things in Sweden are important for the European Union, why the Netherlands, for example, is one of the ones I really have to keep an eye on, um, mm-hmm. covering France, Germany, all these types of things. Um, because Brussels is, it's, I like explaining it as a watchtower. It's the basis by which you can just scan and survey all the other things that are happening in Europe and understand them and then write about them through a particular political lens of why it's important for the rest of the EU. The the strange thing about the EU is there are 27 different countries. A lot of them are very, very small, um, Mm -hmm. but even, even they matter. Even they matter, Um, particularly on areas where one country can veto um, policies yeah. which require unanimity mm. and, and that's the sort of situation we're finding ourselves in now because I'm writing a lot about Poland and Hungary who've blocked the EU's budget and it's effectively causing a political crisis in the European Union and how are we going to get mm-hmm. out of it so that's the kind of um, the the things that Brussels as a, as a job throws up at you high level oh, really international cool. politics and diplomacy that's the best stuff nice so you must travel around Europe quite a lot as well Exactly. Yeah. So you've got to do a lot of traveling because the there is a, a circus. Um, one of the main ju- things I used to do was go to Strasbourg every month where the European Parliament has, it has two headquarters. One of them is in Brussels where they have uh, a chamber and the other one is in Strasbourg in France. So um, near the French-German border in Alsace. That mm-hmm. would be something that I do, which is a great trip. Um, a lot of people resent it because it's it is a traveling circus, but I would always really <laughs> enjoy it because you get to get out of town. And then we have meetings of EU ministers and presidents and prime ministers all across Europe. Um, mm-hmm. So I think uh, you know at a drop, I've been in Brussels for three years. I've probably done a third of the continent in terms of traveling among its member states. Nice everywhere from Finland to Romania and Bulgaria. Um, you have to go to Luxembourg quite a lot. Which is, I'll be honest not the most glamorous place <laughs> in the world but you know it's got to be done um and you get to see europe and you get to understand yeah. the way that european union is perceived in different countries and being a brit it's it's interesting because i came from the uk where we just had the brexit referendum and mm-hmm. the conversation about the european union was very um polarized people who voted in and people who voted out and it, it basically divided the country and you see that in most countries in the European Union, there is a nuance about the European Union. There are some people who, who love it and want to stay in, but think it needs to change. They think it needs to change when it comes to migration, or they think they need to change when it comes to um, how they do economic policy, or it needs to change mm-hmm. it about how it comes to trade. All these things are parts of conversations in different countries. And just understanding their attitudes um, is is really really fascinating, and it, it like I said, it's completely endless. I don't, it'd be very difficult to ever get bored in this job, or to feel mm. like you've clocked it. Like, oh yeah, I get it now. I've, I understand the <laughs> European Union. I will never understand the European Union, and nobody really understands it because a lot of the times they just make it up as they go along. Yeah. I suppose it's constantly evolving, so you just have to keep learning with it. Exactly. I mean, there's so COVID has proven to be a completely unforeseen unprecedented crisis that nobody saw coming and it has produced unprecedented amounts of policy response that Brussels has Mm -hmm. never done before in its history. Um, Mm -hmm. The EU budget I was talking about has been blocked by two countries. If it Mm. keeps getting blocked, that will also be another completely unprecedented moment in the history of the European Union. And because the European Union is still quite new, it's only been around for over 60 years or so. It's a new political beast. A lot of the things that it deals with are the first times it's ever had to deal with them. Um, and, uh, and you watch, you're kind of at the front line of history as a journalist of European Union, you're watching historical events happen 
And for years and years and years, people are going to write their PhDs about subjects that you are mm. at the front line covering. So one of the best things, one of the most exhilarating things that I see is that when people write academic papers and they quote my reporting in their footnotes. Um, <laughs> wow. Yeah. So like you see academics writing about, you know, certain financial moments in the European Union and the citation is me. Because I, nice. I wrote a story about this new thing that's just happened. Uh, and having yeah. been a historian and kind of tried to do some of the academia, I think the reason I left academia was because I actually wanted to do, wanted to be at the front line writing about it as it was happening and understanding it as it was happening rather than waiting yeah. a few years and doing what academics do and stroke their chin and say, oh, yes, you know. <laughs> reflect. Yeah, reflect. And this was a big moment in the history of integration. I actually just want to, I want to, I want to see it. I want to see it unfold. Then I just want to write about it as it, ha as it happens. It's, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes journalism is the first take on history. Mm -hmm. And there are a few jobs where you can really be that first take, but covering the European Union in 2020 is, I think, a first draft of history. Oh, wow. That, that's really nice. So um, while you're talking about this, one question is, one time in your career where you were really proud of the work that you've done, either because it was most impactful or that made you realize that you're really glad that this is the path that you chose? Oh, that is a really good question. That is a very good question. I think some of the best things that I've done as a news reporter are write about things like scoops to so have exclusives. And mm -hmm. then to see your story actually change um, people's minds or change the views of the policymakers who wanted to do those stories. Mm -hmm. um, so it generates enough of a reaction that people say, oh, my God, have you seen the story in the FT about blah, blah policy that's happening? Um, one, we don't we really don't like it. So let's try and kill it off. Or the other one is like, this is such a brilliant idea that we should all do this. So there have been a couple of I mean, they're quite niche because a lot of the stuff in the European Union people see it as quite boring. But I think mm -hmm. I remember writing about something. Um, that the com European Commission was planning to raid the money of its national central banks to generate um, money to pay off, um, to generate money for, for the European Union, so like an EU tax. So mm -hmm. it's a classic story about the Brussels trying to get hold of cash, which belongs to member states, and using that money for its own purposes. Therefore, you know, in a lot of countries, this generates resentment. And we found out about this pretty early on. And I think we published a story on the front page and it generated such a backlash from people who didn't know that this plan was happening that it ended up the, it ended up killing the whole idea. Wow. Um, another one was about the EU's plans to create a digital tax. And uh, okay. I think we were the first person, um, first people to find out about what the plan was and how much money it was going to generate and how tech companies were going to be taxed by the European Union and the billions and billions and billions of, of revenues that it was going to generate. And I think we got hold of the first leaked draft of what the plan was and we wrote about it. And it became one of the most controversial topics in Brussels for about two to three years. It's caused a trade war with the United States um, wow. who, who accused the European Union of taxing its companies. Um, and eventually the plan sort of fizzled away. But we, you know, I think in 2018, the first major news story about what this thing was, was published in the FT. And mm -hmm. that's the kind of stuff that other newspapers pick up and they write about because, you know, and they quote you and they say, you know, first, you know, when I see my stories being quoted by reporters at the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal or Reuters, then it's like, yeah, I'm doing my job nice. and I'm doing it really, really well. Um, and presidents and prime ministers read the Financial Times. So, and a lot of the times they, you know, they get exercised by what they read and, and having the ability to, it's a cliche, but to speak truth to power, it's very... Mm -hmm. It's big responsibility, and um, uh, I, you know, it's kind of it's it's odd when you just sit here, you know, tapping away at your laptop all the time, and you just put stories out into the ether. You don't know what they're going to generate as a reaction, and sometimes, you know, mm -hmm. presidents and prime ministers will come back at you and say, "Okay, here's why I think you're wrong," or "I read what you wrote," and yeah. um, you know, so it's. Uh, yeah, it's really weird, actually. I mean, you, sometimes you just don't realize the effect that it can have uh, on who's reading. That's super cool. And and where do you see yourself now going in the future? So I've done this job for about three years. Um, the FT has quite, um, I think, a really healthy way of rotating people around in their jobs. I, 
you know, because of COVID for, uh, and other things that are happening, you know, the, the jobs rotation is sort of slowing down. People are not hopping around different bureaus because it's difficult, right? If you're in lockdown, how do you uh, meet people in a new beat? How do you interact with them? How do you generate sources and stories if you're working from home? So it's tough. So I think I will, you know, I'm happily going to stick it out here. We have a mm-hmm. newsletter, like I said, that we wrote, that we write in Brussels every day. I think we're going to relaunch it in the new year, you know, create a super product, bring in more readers, provide more analysis and more intelligence and kind of, you know, build the FT as as, as Brussels' most reliable, um, most informative, most analytical, most relevant um, media publication uh, for the European Union. Um, and I'm, I very much feel part of like this this wider project to make, to make us the go-to mm-hmm. place for anyone who cares about Europe. Amazing. And finally, just to touch on, you know, what was in your experience, what's the woman representation like in this, uh, what I assume is a very male dominated line of profession? Yeah. So I mentioned sports journalism where I don't have the figures at hand, <laughs> but you don't, yeah. you just need to look around and see there are not that many women. I think when I was at the Mirror, I think there were no other women on the sports side of the oh wow of the operation apart from one columnist, but she never came into the office, so uh, it felt quite remote. Um, it was the same in the Guardian. Things have changed a lot for sports journalism and female writers and female commentators on broadcast uh, on radio. They are becoming uh, known, and also one of the reasons is because is um, women's football is becoming a big deal. And yeah. women's football is, is kind of uh, exploded in the last five years, which is mm-hmm. brilliant. In the FT, we're, we're getting there. There is a pay, there is a gender pay gap, which um, is incrementally getting smaller every year. Having said that, for the, F, for the first time in its history, the FT has a female editor who took oh, over wow. the paper. Yep, she's called Rula Halaf. She took over the paper earlier this year. Um, nice. First time in the FT's history that we've had a female uh, editor-in-chief. Mm-hmm. It's great, obviously, for representation and just to make people realise they can do it. We've had some problems in Brussels in the past. I think before I turned up, or one of my colleagues just before me turned up in 2017, there hadn't been a female reporter in this bureau for nearly a decade. And I think reputationally, that was just, it was just odd. Oof. And people would make comment. I think, I remember when I turned up, and people are quite surprised. The other thing is that people don't realize that I'm uh, a female because they can't always differentiate my name. So I do get a lot of angry emails from Mr. Khan, directed at Mr. Khan. Um, uh, actually, one of the things that I, I don't really make a point of is that a lot of people don't realize that I'm a female. So I, and I realize that that's one of the reasons I don't get as much hate, obvious hate, or oh, wow. abuse or harassment on Twitter. Yeah, that a lot of my female colleagues do. Um, I get, you know, the odd racially motivated uh, assault uh, because mm. people know that your name is quite weird sounding anyway. Uh, and, I, and you get the actual, there's a little bit of animosity towards the Brits, but that's usually in good humor. But I think mm. if more people realized that I was a woman, um, I probably think I would get a lot more trolls as well, but um, mm. they don't. They don't always realize that. So it'd be an interesting thought experiment for me if I just changed my name one day to, to Samantha. And <laughs> I, I bet because Brussels is still very male, you know, it, you know, a lot of the most powerful people in the European Union are men, um, mm-hmm. despite the fact that you know the German Chancellor is a woman and the President of the European Commission is a woman. It's mm-hmm. still got a male vibe about it. Yeah. Um, whether they realize that I am a woman. A lot of people tell me that they don't think I'm a woman because of the way that I write. You know, a, a lot of my an- analysis is pretty punchy. I like it mm-hmm. quite strong. And they naturally assume, which I find quite funny, that I am, it's because I'm a dude. Yeah, the uh, confidence is coming from a man, surely. Yes, of course. Nobody, <laughs> nobody else, no, no woman would dare write um, so authoritatively about Europe because, yeah. you know, she wouldn't, she wouldn't know any better. Um, no. so be prepared for it I mean anyone who wants to go into journalism and have a prominent public facing role if you're a woman you're going to have to deal with sexism um, mm-hmm. not only casual comments but actual genuine um, stuff lobbed at you by anonymous mm-hmm. people on the internet and sometimes by not very anonymous people on the internet it's a part mm-hmm. of public life now it's part of things that politicians deal with and, and singers and musicians and you know sports people and journalists uh, and you, you be ready to have a thick skin 
uh, be ready to defend yourself uh, and your opinions and your news reporting and yourself um, mm-hmm. and don't let it you know get you down because I think you know it's it, it's sadly just become a part of life now mm. No, I agree. I was just reading this yesterday, actually, which was, as you as you were mentioning, a social experiment where, you know, two people who are in sales who usually email clients, one is male and one is female, um, they got feedback that the female was dealing with fewer clients than the male one. And then they switched their names at the end of the email and realized that the man was now getting so much pushback from clients. They were being so difficult. They would just question everything he would ask. But then the woman had the best month of her life where every client was just saying yes to everything she would say. And then you see that it's just just the perception. It's just still there, which is terrible. And this is exactly what you were saying about because they assume you're a man. Then they, they, they perceive what you were putting out there differently exactly it's 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 crazy i mean the fact that as a female report I mean, the other thing is the ft writes a lot about companies right so we and we cover we cover finance a lot you know we cover bro world finance world um traders bankers it's a very male dominated industry and it has that kind of perception of you know testosterone um, mm-hmm. you know, very rich people. I've never covered that world, but when I used to cover markets a little bit, you do get a sense of like, uh, you know, it's, it's very alien. One thing that I would say to people and that I've always kept very close to myself is that I think the best journalists that I've ever known and I read think of themselves as outsiders watching. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. writing and observing about the world that they're in, they're not part of it. And that that outsidery status, not feeling that you completely belong, is probably the best quality that you can retain as somebody who wants to be a journalist. To know enough about, you know, it's almost like being an anthropologist. To know enough about the dynamics of the people and the communities that you cover and their world, without ever feeling that you're in it. And mm-hmm. I think one of the most interesting things that's happened in recent years is Brexit and Donald Trump. Because these are two (laughs) stories that have been so divisive. And Brexit in particular, which I watched happening in the UK, for the first time, a lot of British journalists felt like they had personally lost something when Brexit Mm -hmm. happened. That they had lost a part of their children's future or the thing that they, you know, identified with so much had gone. And a lot of journalists struggled because they couldn't switch off their personal part to then just do, okay, I'm a journalist, so I just need to kind of write about this, stand right. apart from it and cover it. Same way that Amer- a lot of the American journalists would have seen the Trump story. The Trump story is not just a political story. It is personal for so many people who live mm-hmm. in the United States and who identify with the US. And I've watched a lot of amazing colleagues of mine struggle with that, um, to struggle with putting that personal part of them aside and mm-hmm. just having to, to switch on their journalistic instinct. Um, and it's become something that I think a lot of people would have only experienced in the last 10 to 20 years. Because a lot of the times, right, if you're writing at the FT, you're writing about the European Union and the UK's position in the EU. But you're covering a kind of, you know, the UK was always in. So, you you know, mm-hmm. the, also the consequences of writing, let's say, so-called negative stories about the EU were pretty low. But suddenly mm-hmm. it felt like, okay, now we're out. What the heck? Like, how do we process this can we still write critical stories about the european union even though we hate brexit yeah (laughs) um and it's it's been a process that people are dealing with i you know i stand apart from the european union i watch it unfold i think i do that as a journalist i put my personal bits aside but of course there are stories that i write about which sometimes for me are personal they are closer Mm -hmm. to my heart than they are another reporter's heart um, mm-hmm. you know, I write, uh, or I observe a lot of the debate about Islam in Europe, mm-hmm. um, which I think is a very, you know, it's a debate that comes and goes, but I think it's one of the most important debates that most countries have or the, about migration, for example. And mm-hmm. I feel those stories a little bit more than my colleagues. Of course I do. Yeah. Because they are, you know, I am the child, the grandchild of migrants. I'm also Muslim in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Things that policymakers and politicians say on those topics sound differently to me than they would my colleagues. Exactly. And I got to remind myself, okay, yeah, it might cut me a little bit deeper to hear people mm. using rhetoric, not necessarily the far right, but mainstream politicians using rhetoric that I don't like. 
But I got mm-hmm. to switch it off. You got to switch it off and just cover the story, find the story, um, and and report about it in a way as you would do anything else. So mm-hmm. you know, to anyone listening, you want to be a journalist. You care about stuff, and you you have your own convictions. Mm-hmm. That's a good thing. That's always a good thing. And don't beat yourself up about the fact that you could be. You know, let's be honest. Every reporter is always accused of being biased. Um, there's no such thing as neutrality. It's BS. Mm-hmm. There's no such thing as objectivity. There isn't. It doesn't exist. It doesn't mm-hmm. exist in any newspaper. We all make choices every single day about the types oh, of yeah. stories we want to do. And the things that you don't see are the stories that we don't cover because we've chosen not to do them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the kind of world we live in. Don't strive for this level of like purity that you will always be the most objective person. It, it's just not true, but you have to be, just be as fair as possible. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And working with, you know, I have brilliant editors and brilliant colleagues that you bounce ideas off. And sometimes they come back to you and say, maybe we could reformulate this, or this is quite a loaded sentence. Let's take mm-hmm. this out. I always appreciate that because you just got to mm-hmm. learn how to do this right. Um, and we live in a, such a politically polarized world. And that just wasn't the case 20 years ago for lots of so-called yeah. liberals or progressives. They lived mm-hmm. in a world where everything that they believed in was manifestly happening and true and, and self-evident. And now a lot of people are questioning those things. And it does put liberal newspapers and media organizations in a difficult position. Mm-hmm. Well, this is very good advice to um, end this episode with. Um, I think this has been really, really cool, really useful. Thank you, Mehreen. I hope you had fun too. Pleasure, as always. Is there, is there anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, I mean, if, if you know, I, I have a lot of young journalists that get in touch with me and just want to know how to get into journalism. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of a, maybe it's a bit of a piece of nonsense advice, but you really just got to hustle. And mm-hmm. also don't underestimate being a nice person and just being Mm -hmm. somebody that people want to have around. Um, A lot of the time journalism, you know, when you're producing the journalism, it's great and you're doing great stories. But when people hire you, they think, okay, do I want this person in my office, in my newsroom? Are they going to be an easy person to work with on a day-to-day basis if I'm their editor or I'm their boss? Just don't underestimate the value of being a good guy or girl, Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. being willing to learn all the time. Uh, A lot of journalists, I think, you know, you can get to a place of seniority where you feel like you're untouchable and stuff. This is a lesson, I think, for everyone. Um, You know, treat those who are under you better than the ones who are above you. Like, because eventually those people might turn around and be the ones who are going to give you a job at the end of the day. I don't think anything is above you, but this is a lesson, I think, for anyone starting out in any career. Um, be in, be a be a good person. Be nice. I like that. Be nice. Be <laughs> yeah. ge- be generous with your time and and help out. You know, be collegiate. Mhm. Mhm. Lovely. Well, thank you so much, Mahreen. This has been awesome, and good luck with everything else. Thanks very much. Bye. Bye. <laughs>